Well, good morning, church family. I want to invite you to go ahead and take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to James chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you joining us from other locations or those of you that are tuning in online who are physically unable to be with us today. And I also want to extend a special welcome to those of you here who may be visiting or in town for the holiday weekend. My name is Nate Reed, and I serve as a location pastor here at Tyson's, and we're so grateful that you chose to be with us here this Sunday morning. Uh, just uh, before we dive into the word, just a quick reminder for our church family, next Sunday night, we're planning to gather together for a special service to celebrate Mike's installation as a lead pastor in our church. Yes, praise God for that. Uh, we're going to spend some time celebrating God's grace and leading Mike into this role and taking some time to pray over him and his family as they step into this next phase of life and ministry. That's going to be at 5 o'clock here at the Tyson's location. Uh, no matter what NBC location you go to, we'd love to have you join us for that. Uh, there's more information can be found in whatever location you attend their uh, weekly e-newsletter. So that's, uh, that's this next Sunday, December 3rd, and you guys are all invited to be a part of that. And now, thinking about this morning, we're going to continue through our series on the beauty of faith, walking verse by verse through the book of James. And it is a book that consistently reframes how we live in this world in light of what Jesus has done. Last weekend, Pastor Mike walked us through the beginning of chapter 4, which covered the source of conflict in our lives. Now, depending on how your Thanksgiving went with your family, some of you may need to re-listen to that message to help you in the days ahead. And now today, these next verses are going to speak to a topic that applies to every single one of us that are listening in here this morning. It's going to address how we make and pursue our plans, how we make and pursue plans in our lives. So just a quick show of hands, whether here or even those of you at other locations, uh, how many of you would consider yourself to be a planner? Okay, fair amount of you. This is DC, I guess, so a lot of us tend to be planners. Some of you are ultra planners. I would say I'm a planner, maybe not to that extreme, but even if you don't consider yourself to be a planner, the reality is that every single one of us plans for the future in some form or fashion. We all do it. Because we all have expectations or desires for how we want to see certain things play out in our lives. And we live and plan to make those expectations a reality. Let me give you just a few examples. We're all on the same page. Consider the plans or expectations that you have for your career or what you're aiming to accomplish through your life. Or you might have expectations for what you want your retirement to look like. And you're strategically working in ways now to work towards that goal. Or for the high school students that are in the room, you're likely wrestling through what you're going to do after graduation. You might be thinking about where you're going to school or what you're going to plan to study. That was a particular area of struggle for me. I changed my major seven times before even stepping on campus at Penn State University. And then I changed it three times my freshman year. I don't recommend following my example on that. It's not helpful. You got, you, <laughs> you got me where I am, that's right. Maybe you have relational expectations. I know some of you in the room are actually wedding planning right now to be married soon. Others of you have a desire to marry, or maybe you have a deep longing to be a parent or are preparing to have children in your home. Or maybe even on a practical level, some of you realize this weekend that Christmas is now only 29 days away, 
And you need to have a plan in place for gift giving in your family. Like, don't put it off, men. Going to Walmart on Christmas Eve isn't gonna work. Trust me, I've tried it. It doesn't work. We all have plans or expectations for this life. And if God in his word speaks to future planning, then we should want to know how to go about those plans and expectations in a way that honor him. Especially because we're gonna see in this text that there's a way to plan that God describes as arrogant and evil. So before we get into the text, I actually wanna ask you to write down the answer to this one question. Whether you're taking notes on paper or using your device, I actually want you to write this out because we're gonna come back to it a little bit later. But what is one thing you are currently planning for or working towards in your life? Go ahead and write out the answer to that question. What is one thing you are currently planning for or working towards in your life? And try to think big picture about this. Don't write down like after the service, I'm planning to go out to eat at fill-in restaurant name of choice. Like even though I do believe this passage actually speaks about little plans like going out to eat, I think it'll actually be more helpful if you think more big picture. So what is one thing you're currently planning for or working towards in your life. And while you're writing down the answer to that question, I do wanna recognize that there's likely some of you in this room or listening in today that are exploring Christianity or maybe you're checking out church for the first time and you're probably wondering, why should I even consider God when making my plans? And if that's you, I just want you to know, I am so glad you're here today. In fact, it's been my prayer all week Uh, that this text would show you the incredible implications that it has for your life as well. So invite you to participate with us and hang with us as we walk through these verses. Okay, do you have something written down? Okay, if you're with me, say, oh yeah. There we go, there we go. Then I just wanna lead us to pray a simple prayer together before we dive into this passage. I'm gonna ask you to recite this prayer along with me. It's a simple prayer, just as Lord, show me how to hold and pursue the plans in my life in a way that honors you. So I'll repeat it phrase after phrase and you can just pray this along with me. Let's pray together before we dive in. Lord, show me how how to hold and pursue pursue the plans in my life life in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, name. and we all said together, amen. 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 All right, we're in James chapter four, starting in verse 13. Let me give you just a little context before we read the passage. Remember, uh, this is written by James, the brother of Jesus, who is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and were being tempted to revert back to the culture that surrounded them. And then in this particular passage, James is actually addressing certain itinerant merchants who had come to faith and joined the church. Like they're businessmen whose their business would have involved traveling around from town to town, working as shopkeepers, tradesmen, or moneylenders. And they were approaching their faith with the same mentality that they would approach their business, which, for honest, is just as much of a temptation for us today in the church. If it works in the business world, then it must work in the church which is totally not the case. And this approach was harmful for those specific individuals and it was leading others astray in the church, which is why this passage begins with some really strong wording. The beginning of verse 13 says, come now. This is like when you say to your kids, listen up. Like he's starting off strong. So James chapter four, starting in verse 13, 
you don't have a copy of the word, it'll be up on the screen. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And in that phrase, he's actually quoting here from the book of Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 27 verse one, which says, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. It's a passage that the Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with. So he continues on. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So James writing to them, he's saying, think about the craziness of what you're saying here. And in addressing this church, he's gonna present two ways of how we can make and pursue our plans. One way that is arrogant and another way that is wise. So we're gonna begin with the arrogant way, starting in the first verse. And I wanna take a look at this together. Let's look and see what these merchants were saying and see if we can tell what's wrong with their perspective. Okay, so this is what they're saying. They say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So let me ask you, was it wrong for them to travel for the sake of business? No, not at all. Then was it wrong for them to decide where and how long they were going to stay there? No, there would likely be some wisdom needed in making those choices, but ultimately, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Was it wrong for them to, make, uh, to desire to make a living from their work? No. no. The Bible never says that we are not to earn a living. In fact, it often rebukes those who neglect to provide for their families through their job. Amen. Is James saying here that we shouldn't plan at all? That should be a resounding no. <laughs> In fact, the proverb he quoted from earlier, Proverbs 27, will actually go on to talk about the importance of planning for the uncertainties of life. It's verses 23 to 27. God's word affirms that planning itself is good and wise. So what's the problem here? What's missing in this picture? God. He's completely left out of their plans. They're only focused on their own wants and desires. And that's the primary issue. They were making their plans without any acknowledgement of Almighty God. The issue wasn't what that that they were planning to do this and that. The issue was that their planning, in their planning, they saw themselves as master and lord over their own lives, which is one of the characteristics of an arrogant planner. So if you're taking notes, let's start a list here just to kind of compare these two. When it comes to planning, the arrogant person foolishly ignores the rule of God. The arrogant person foolishly ignores the rule of God. It sets God aside and ignores his rightful rule in the world. And I say rule because of the title used for God in this passage. It's the word Lord in verse 15, which means master or ruler. It's referring specifically to Jesus. And I also just want us to beware because this attitude might not dismiss God completely. Because remember, James is writing to a group of believers, meaning they believed in God. They might even have said, Jesus is Lord. 
But when it comes to their plans, they're saying, I'm the one calling the shots here. I get to decide. And this is the height of arrogance. To belittle or even dismiss the reign and rule of God in the world as well as in our own lives. It's the height of arrogance. Which is why James calls this kind of boasting evil in verse 16, which we're gonna explore the implications of that in just a little bit. So when it comes to planning, the arrogant person foolishly ignores the rule of God and then they also dismiss the word of God. They dismiss the word of God. And we see this specifically in verse 17. James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now I know this verse might seem a little out of place because of the wording, <clears throat> particularly because the tense changes from you to him and that's likely because James is actually quoting another common proverb here, and he's tying it to this kind of boasting. He's saying that the arrogant fool not only dismisses God's rule, but also dismisses his commands. The people he were writing to were saying with their actions, I don't care what God's word says, I'm gonna do it my way instead. They knew the right thing to do, but chose to do otherwise, and this is what the Bible calls sin. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, when we think about sin, we often think about of it just doing wrong things. That's ten, 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 that tends to be how we think about sin. But it actually goes even deeper than that. You think about sin, it's actually a heart that's inclined to choose our own ways instead of God's. It's actually a posture that says, God, I know better than you, which plays out in our actions. So God says not to do this, and I choose to do it anyway. They're called sins of commission. But James is speaking to yet another way that we're inclined to disobey God and his commands. When we know the right thing to do, but we choose not to do it. God says, do this, and I choose not to do it anyway. These are known as sins of omission, omitting what he said. And God says, this is also sinful. You wonder, well, what might that look like? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. We know we're called to share the gospel with others, but oftentimes choose not to open our mouths instead. Like we saw in James 2 a few weeks ago, we know that we are called to care for the poor, but often fail to do it. We know that we're called to give with a cheerful heart, but oftentimes still do so begrudgingly. These things are also sinful in and of themselves. So the arrogant fool disobeys the word of God. And then finally, when it comes to planning, the arrogant person foolishly lives only for this life. Live only for this life. This is the point James is making in the middle of verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, don't plan with such certainty. You don't know what tomorrow holds. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us. This actually echoes Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12. He tells a parable about a man who had amassed great riches through his farming. And listen to how he thinks about his wealth. Luke chapter 12, verses 17 to 20. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods uh, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Amen. He had amassed all this wealth, but had no idea that his life was about to end. You maybe have heard the common uh, phrase said before, hearses are not followed by U-Hauls. Can't take it with you. That should change our perspective on planning. Not for these folks, though. And I know that some of you from recent doctor's visits know what it's like to feel the uncertainty of life based on the diagnosis or news that you received. In fact, this actually hit home for our family over the holiday weekend. We were visiting family in Georgia for Thanksgiving, and while we were there, my 42-year-old brother-in-law learned that he has an 80% blockage in the main artery to his heart. We call it the Widowmaker. And he's an incredibly healthy and active guy. None of us know what tomorrow may bring. And James doesn't stop there. He actually goes on to say in verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So those of you who have been in Citywide recently, you've actually been using the same illustration as you've been walking through the study of Ecclesiastes. I know some of you like it, some of you don't, but I think it's helpful. James says, do you want to know what your life is? It's this. Here and gone. It's a mist. You're here for a moment, then you're gone. Now, while I'm using this spray bottle up here, James was envisioning a mist that was created by waves from the Mediterranean Sea crashing on the shoreline, which in a dry and arid climate would last a lot shorter than this. So like, when you think about your life in relation to eternity, there's no comparison. No comparison. If this life is all there is, then absolutely yes, live it up. But if this life is not the end, and if the way we live in this life determines how we're going to spend billions upon billions of years to come after this life, then it is utterly foolish to plan in ways that only make sense in this life. Amen. Utterly foolish. They were only thinking about this life. So, to summarize, James describes this whole approach to planning as arrogant. It foolishly ignores the rule of God, it dismisses the word of God, and lives for this life alone. So is there a better way to make and pursue our plans based on these verses? You might be thinking, Nate, we walked through all these verses and they don't seem to offer us much encouragement. It's all kind of down, actually. But if you dig a little bit deeper in this passage, we'll actually find that James presents a second way to approach our plans that stands in stark contrast to what we've already seen. Starting in verse 15, which if you read through this too quickly, you're gonna miss the key to this entire passage. So read it with me, James 4, 15. This is what he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Did you catch that? If the Lord wills, we will what? Live. Do you feel the weight of what James is saying in this verse? He's saying that the only reason that you have life and breath in your lungs right now is because God has allowed it. Amen. This is true of every single person in the world right now, even those who don't believe in him. 
he graciously gives us life, sustains it, until he decides that's enough. This is something that's clearly taught through the entire Bible. Let me just highlight a few places so you can see this. In the book of Job, which chronologically follows, actually towards the beginning of the Bible, uh, he actually describes God in this way. Job says, uh, 33 verse four, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of Almighty gives me life. The prophet, prophet Isaiah tells us the same thing about God. After he's delivered revelation from God about the coming Isaiah, uh, Messiah, here's how he describes God. Isaiah 42, verse five. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Fast forward to the New Testament. The apostle Paul will show this the same thing about Jesus. One of the most glorious passages, I think, in Colossians 1.17, speaking about the one that Isaiah was even writing about, he says this, Colossians 1.17, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if God is the one who creates and sustains all of life, then it's clear why James would describe making plans apart from him as arrogant. If God is the one who's in control of our lives, then we should humbly plan in submission to him. Which leads to the second way that we can make and pursue plans in our lives. In contrast to the arrogant fool, when it comes to planning, the wise person humbly submits to the sovereign Lord. The wise person humbly submits to the sovereign Lord. Verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The wise person humbly acknowledges the sovereignty of God and plans in humble submission to however the Lord leads. And I use the word wise here because the book of Proverbs, which James has already quoted, tells us that true knowledge and wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Reverence for who he is. Proverbs 1 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And later in the book, he'll say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen. So when it comes to planning, the wise person humbly submits to the sovereign Lord. I'm guessing some of you don't understand what we mean by the term sovereignty, and we don't have time to build out the full doctrine of the sovereignty of God this morning, but this is the biblical teaching that God, being all-powerful, works all things according to his perfect purposes and plans. He works all things according to his perfect purposes and plans. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is fixed and that we're robots that are following a predetermined path. The Bible is very clear that God also gives all people the ability to choose and that we're responsibility for those choices and our actions. So this is the beautiful mystery of our faith that God is ultimately in charge and people make real choices. So it means that God is sovereign which means that we need to plan recognizing that he is fully in control. He has the full right and ability to either allow our plans to continue or to change them however he sees fit. He has the full right and ability to do that. And James tells us that as followers of Jesus, this is the appropriate way to approach our plans with open hands. Open hands to him. That's why he says we should say, if the Lord wills. It's like the saying, Lord willing, which can I be honest with you for a moment? This is the interactive part. Oh, thank thank you for your permission. Thank you. (laughs) It used to really bother me when people use that phrase. 
especially in like simple ways. Like, I'm going to the store this afternoon, Lord willing. It bugged me so much. But as I've grown as a follower of Jesus, I've realized that this is actually the posture we are supposed to have in everything we pursue. If God is sovereign and sustains all things, then yes, everything is up to his will, including whether or not you go to the grocery store this afternoon. Now, I don't think this passage is a command that we're to always use that phrase, but it's certainly telling us that that phrase needs to shape our hearts and minds. So if saying it helps you maintain that mindset, go for it, go for it. I give you permission. James tells us that if the Lord wills, we will live. Which I hope now you're starting to see that this truth has implications far beyond just our planning. If God is truly sovereign and sustaining all things, we need to submit to him, not just in our plans, but with our entire lives. Like we need to depend on him as if our existence and eternity depends on it because they do. And because of the natural state of our hearts, we are all in desperate need. Because brothers and sisters, every single one of us were born like that arrogant fool. We're born with that inclination. If you've never trusted in Jesus, this is what I want you to hear more than anything else this morning. You see, we are all prone to think in ways that our plans are better than God's. I think that our ways are better than his. We want to be Lord over our own lives instead of submitting to him. And we live and act as if that's the case. But if God is the one who sustains and upholds all things, if he's the one who's given you life and breath, then again, it is actually the height of arrogance to think, plan, and live otherwise. It's the height of arrogance. It's actually rebellion against God's rightful place as king and Lord in the world. And that's why James calls this kind of attitude evil. As it is, verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And as a perfect, holy, and just God, he must address our rebellion. And the penalty for rebelling against an infinitely holy God is infinite separation from him. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from that reality, which means we are in desperate need of being saved. But the good news of the Bible, we've sung about it already today, is that while there was nothing we could do, God did everything necessary for us. He sent his perfect son, Jesus, to die in our place on the cross, bearing the full weight of the penalty that we all deserved. It was the perfect plan that he'd established before even the creation of the world. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later, showing that he had conquered sin and death. And then he declares that anyone, no matter who they are or what they have done, can be forgiven of their sin, welcomed into a relationship for all of eternity if they're willing to place their complete trust in him. If they're willing to do that. So if you're here or listening in and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I wanna urge you to place your trust in him today. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. None of us are guaranteed even the next hour of life. And to die without receiving his free gift of salvation will leave you separated from him for all of eternity. It is wise to humbly submit to the sovereign Lord with our entire lives. And if this is the case, then the rest of this example only makes sense. The wise person humbly submits to the sovereign Lord and humbly obeys God's word. 
humbly obeys God's word. This is the converse of verse 17. If it's sinful to know the right thing to do and not do it, then it's pleasing to the Lord to know the right thing and to do it. It's pleasing to him. And how can we know what the right thing is? Who gets to define that? God does. And he's told us what's right in his word. Amen. He's told us. We then obey him joyfully, recognizing that he gives us his word for our good and to align our purposes with his will. Which I know always brings up a, a popular question, how do I discern God's will for my life? We could spend an entire sermon unpacking that topic for sure. You know how you want to know God's will for your life? Know this word. Amen. Know this word. Now, while the Bible, it's true, the Bible won't give you specifics about what job to pursue, who to marry, or where to go to school. The principles and commands we find in his word will absolutely guide you in decisions and establishing plans that align with his will. Yes. So let me give you just a couple of examples to see this. God clearly tells us in Romans 6.13 not to present your members to sin. If that's the case, then don't make plans with your friends that will place you in temptation's way to sin. It is God's will that you don't do that. God also clearly tells us in Galatians 6, 2 to bear one another's burdens. And this can only happen when we are in consistent fellowship with other believers, which means that it's actually disobedient to God to pack our lives out in such a way that we cannot be in community in the church. It is God's will for your life that you are in community with other believers in the context of the local church, which is why we long to see every single member of our church in a church group, doing life together with other believers, bearing one another's burdens, living out the one another's of scripture. So the wise person humbly obeys God's word. And finally, when it comes to planning, the wise person humbly lives for eternity humbly lives for eternity. If your life is a mist and eternity is coming, what else is there worth living for? I know, we live in a culture that tells us from the day that we're born that our aim in life is to do well in school, get a good job, make a lot of money, and retire with enough savings to enjoy the good life. And those are not necessarily bad things. You should strive to do well in school and in your jobs, We already talked about this. You do need to work to provide for our families. But if those things are the ultimate aims of our lives, we've totally missed the point. We've totally missed the point. If eternity is coming, then we need to base our entire lives around that reality. Our entire lives. In fact, we should live in ways that only make sense in eternity. So, for example, if the Lord provides you with a job, Rather than striving to elevate your own name, consider how you can best elevate Christ's name in that environment. Amen. Like students, when you think about your career and choosing a vocation, maybe choose a vocation that will allow you to live or work in a part of the world where the gospel has not yet been preached. Like I think about one of our NBC missionaries I had the chance to visit two weeks ago in Southeast Asia who intentionally took a job among unreached peoples to serve and spread the gospel. That's living in light of eternity. Or say the Lord allows you to make a lot of money. Rather than amassing a lot of things for yourself, like we saw in Luke 12, consider how you can steward those resources in a way that will further God's kingdom. Or if the Lord blesses you with retirement, 
rather than using that time only for recreation and leisure, consider how you might use the gift of time to share the good news of Jesus or serve the Lord and his people. In fact, in all these things, we seek to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him, recognizing that they're headed to eternity without him. Billions upon billions upon years apart from Jesus and eternal suffering. And James backs this up with his life in writing it here because it's actually the story of how he lived. Originally, James denied who Jesus was. He was his brother. He grew up with him and he mocked him. In fact, he told him he was out of his mind. But when he saw Jesus rise from the dead and realized that he was truly the son of God, it changed his life completely. He submitted to the lordship of Jesus, dedicated his life to serving him and following, caring for others. We already mentioned this. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And originally, he even had good favor with the Jewish priests in the city of Jerusalem until more and more people started trusting in Jesus. And then they got nervous. And so the priests were upset with this. And according to tradition, they made James climb to the pinnacle of the temple to try to get him to recant his faith to dissuade all these new believers. And when he refused and proclaimed Jesus instead, they pushed him off the top of the temple, hoping that he would fall to his death. But he didn't die. He hit the ground, and so they began to stone him instead. Jessipus, one of the first church historians, recounted what happened. He says this, James turned and knelt down, saying, I implore you, O Lord, God and Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And while they were pelting him with stones, one of the priests cried out, stop, what are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. Then one, a laundryman, took the club that he used to beat out clothes and hit James the just on the head, and such was his martyrdom. If this life is all that there is, living like that makes no sense. In fact, James is to be pitied in that. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if he truly offers us salvation from our sins, and if he alone promises eternal life beyond the grave, then living like this makes complete sense. In fact, it makes no sense to live any other way. So brothers and sisters, let's make and pursue plans in ways that are wise and not arrogant. And let's do so joyfully in recognition of who God is and what he has done for us. Let's live and plan our lives in humble submission to our sovereign king with open hands in complete trust of Jesus. Let's live and plan our lives in complete obedience to God's word, trusting that his commands are for our good and will align us with his will. And let's live and plan with our eyes fixed on our eternal home, the eternal reward of being face to face with Jesus. That's what's awaiting us. And that's the beauty of faith. Amen. And it's only made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, as we prepare to close, I want us to go back to whatever you wrote down on your paper or on your device. And I want you to consider, how does the way you're planning for that thing align with what we've seen in God's word today? In fact, I wanna give you three questions to help you wrestle through that. We'll put them up on the screen. But question number one, if God were to change your plans to fit his perfect purposes, would it crush you 
or would you be willing to trust him? In other words, are you willing to offer them to him with an open hand? Number two, do my plans align with or contradict God's word? And number three, am I living and planning with eyes focused on this life or are they looking ahead to eternity? I wanna give you a few moments to work through this on your own. I'd encourage you even to write out your answers to those questions. It'll help you process them a little bit more. You can take that with you to pray through later this week. And then I or a pastor at one of the other locations will come back and help us prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. So I wanna invite you to take some time to reflect on these questions on your own. still writing, I want to encourage you to go ahead and continue reflecting if you'd like, but I want to go ahead and just close this time in prayer. Oh God, we thank you that you have given us life and breath. We're alive right now because you've given us life. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to humbly submit to your sovereign rule in the world, but also in our lives. Help us to believe what you tell us in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, to trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, submit to you, trusting that you will make our paths straight because you know it all. You're sovereign and in control. So in light of what we've heard today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit to you as the sovereign Lord of the world. Help us to obey your word. We need your help to do that, Lord. As we consider our plans and work towards future goals, help us to do so in a way that makes sense only in eternity. For those, Lord, listening in or here today that have not yet trusted in you. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Help them to see their great need for you. May they be willing to submit their lives to you, recognizing that on the other side is an eternity of joy with you. May they be willing to follow you in that. As I close, just staying in an attitude of prayer, I actually wanna invite us all to recite the Lord's Prayer Jesus gives us in Matthew 6 together. Fits perfectly with the text we talked, we worked through today. So it'll be up on the screen and let's say this all together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.